As a church this week, this is an exciting week. It is now officially Christmas season, and we have Christmas concerts coming this week, which I'm looking forward to. And this morning, it's starting to actually look like Christmas because it's cold. <laughs> so we should, be, we should be ready. I love Christmas. It is something that I love all the family traditions. I love the tree. Me and my family actually finally put our tree up yesterday. So it is officially Christmas at the Sullivan House. I love the food. I love driving around looking at lights. Now, I'm one of those people that I myself do not climb on my house and put lights up, but I think you should because I like looking at them. So I'm a hypocrite in that area, I admit. But one thing that's just really neat about Christmas, it just seems like everybody is celebrating together. It just almost seems like in some ways the city comes alive. In many ways, it is. Christmas is a massive worldwide event. It is unlike any other holiday. It is celebrated on every continent, and most governments actually recognize it as an official governmental holiday. The U.S. alone, in 2013, the Pew Research Center conducted a survey that concluded 96% of American citizens celebrate Christmas. That's a massive, massive number. There's nobody that agrees on any subject, and yet everybody loves Christmas. One of the interesting things about that survey is they concluded that 81% of even non-Christians participate in the holiday, participate in Christmas in some way, which is really strange. You're talking atheists, people from different religions actually doing things during this season to somehow celebrate the holiday. In fact, here's a testimony from a Buddhist who participates in Christmas. She says this, Although I am a Buddhist, I still participate in many of the rituals of Christmas, buying and decorating a tree, visiting family and friends, searching for meaningful gifts, donating money and time to folks who have less than I do, spending hours making dishes that are consumed in the matter of minutes, now, these are good things. These are nice things. It is good to see families get together and enjoy one another. People from different backgrounds coming together, eating food, giving gifts to one another, and enjoying the season. It's nice. It's good. And yet, 90-something percent people celebrating this holiday because of things that they enjoy, and yet there is something associated with this holiday that to most people in the world views as absurd, as scandalous, something that they wish they could remove if they could. And yet it's always there and just never quite going away. Surrounding all this holiday cheer with the tinsel and the trees and the lights and all that, those things is something that people see is the worst message, a scandalous message. And that scandalous message associated with Christmas is that Jesus Christ came to earth and through him alone, only him, there can be salvation from sins. He is exclusively the savior of the world. Now for Christians, that's not a scandalous message. That is the greatest message given to man. That is the message that actually defines who we are as Christians. It is why we're gathered here this morning 
is because of that message. And yet, we don't need to be naive that we are in a world that is hostile to that message of salvation through Christ alone. And why is that? The reason why is because if there is a savior that God sent to save people, it means you need saving. It is an indictment against you. It means that you cannot be saved through your own merit, your own good nature. Nothing about you is something that is redeemable. You are needy. It means that our sin is so horrible that the only remedy was the most extreme means of God the Son becoming flesh, living a life on earth as a perfect man, dying on a cross for those who would believe in him. Extreme means that it takes for salvation. To a hardened, self-righteous heart, the message of salvation through Christ alone is a scandalous message. And as Christians who bear the name of Jesus in this hostile world, we ourselves need to make sure that we have a robust theology and conviction of who Jesus is. We need to be able to live, to have such a strong faith that not only that we live for him in a way that gives honor to him, but we can share that with people who desperately need that message. We ourselves need to ask ourselves, what do we actually believe about Jesus Christ? So if you were in this morning, if you were an old saint in the faith, if you were a new believer, if you were somebody who doesn't know, this morning, I want you to ask yourself, what do you believe about Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Because that is the most important thing about you that you need to be able to know what you believe. So this morning, we're going to spend some time in Acts chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. We're going to find the apostles Peter and John on trial before some of the most powerful men of their day, men that are opposed to the gospel message that they carry, and yet Peter boldly proclaims the powerful nature of who Jesus is and why what you think of him right now matters in this life and the next. So please take your copy of God's word and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. This is a narrative of Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin, who are asking them a very important question, and Peter gives them a very important answer. Follow along with me, I start at verse 7. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, is how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 
powerful, powerful words about a powerful Savior. Now, before we dive into this text, this is an exposition. It is a sermon within a narrative, which means we need to know the story of how Peter and John came to be before the Sanhedrin giving this message. And the story actually goes back into Acts chapter 3, which for time's sake, I'm just going to tell the story to you. So Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, records Peter and John going up to the temple in the beginning of chapter 3. And they're going into the temple and they pass a man who had been crippled by birth. In fact, he'd been crippled for 40 years. And people would bring him day after day and place him at the gate for he could receive money, for he could live. I mean, he was almost a fixture in that place that people were used to seeing. And so Peter and John walked by and naturally the man asked for money. And yet Peter looks at him and he gives us something far better than money. He tells them this in verse six, he says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazarene, walk. Now that's an absurd thing to say to a man who has been crippled for 40 years. Get up and walk. But through the power of the name of Jesus, this man gets up and walks for the first time in his life. It's an absolutely miraculous story of just the, just the, the compassion that God has on this man. But something more important happens after that. If I can say more important than a man for 40 years be able to walk. This miraculously event happens and guess what? A crowd gathers. And a crowd gathers and just full amazement of what has happened. I mean, they've been looking at this man for years after years after years, sitting, begging, and now he is leaping and dancing around the disciples. It is quite an event. And so they're sitting there staring in amazement. And these people, they have a worse problem than this man did prior to this event of being lame. He had a physical ailment that affected every area of his life. This crowd has a spiritual condition that they're in danger of it affecting their eternity. And like the lame man, Peter does not leave them without provision of their spiritual problem. They had a massive problem and he exposes that to them. And he tells them that they had disowned and murdered the son of God, which is the worst crime you could ever commit. He exposes their horrible acts of sins and their culpability before God, but then he gives them the provision. He gives them the answer. And that is that he begs them to repent of their sins in the name of Jesus. And as miraculous as the lame man being healed and walking for the first time in 40 years, you have people from all different ages who heard that message and they believed. They came to faith and there were thousands that day that believed and were converted to be disciples of Jesus. What a wonderful day. And in all these miraculous things that are happening, I mean, a day like no other in some ways, the temple officials come, they are very upset and they arrest Peter and John. 
for what's going on. They put them in jail, they hold them overnight, and then in the next day, they are put on trial as Luke records at the beginning of chapter four. They're put before the Sanhedrin, which is at that time some of the most powerful men during that time. And Luke even specially mentions Ananias, who was known to be the power behind the throne. If you think that name is familiar, it's because he was the man that when Jesus was arrested, the night of his betrayal, he was the first one they took him to. And not just that, but also his son-in-law, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, who was priestly descent, some of the most important men of Jerusalem. This is quite the affair that's happening here of them now being, in tr- being judged trial before the Sanhedrin, which makes up of 70-something men of the most important men that have a very important question. Now, there's so much going on in this narrative that we can't explore every avenue. We're going to leave it how it is, and we're going to be keep coming back to it this morning. But for now, the stage has been set. Crippled man walks. Thousands have been brought to faith in, in Christ. And this series of events has brought Peter and John in front of the most powerful men in Jerusalem. And these powerful men, they have a very important question. And Peter answers them by proclaiming a name that to them was scandalous, something they did not want to hear. But for Christians, it is a name that defines our innermost belief. So in our passage this morning, in Acts 4, 7 through 12, 7 through 12 rather, we will uncover three essential convictions of the powerful nature of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are defined as being disciples of Christ, and we must have a robust theology and convictions concerning who Jesus is. And the first essential conviction, conviction, conviction that we are, will recover about Jesus in verses 7 through 10 is that he is God's promised resurrected Messiah. Look down at verse 7 with me. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, the places this win would have been more likely almost like a stadium to where the Sanhedrin would have been almost like in stadium seats looking down upon Peter and John asking them this question. And this is something, I'm really confused why they even asked this because they know why they arrested Peter and John. They are very clear on that. Luke records that in chapter four, chapter four, verse two, where he talks about them coming and taking them and they came up to arrest them because it says that they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's why they were arrested. They knew this. And they asked this question, and the reason why I'm so intrigued by it is because they could not have asked a better question. I mean, this is something that they didn't have to ask any question at all. They could have just said, stop doing this or else. They could, maybe it was because they, being superior, thought they could trip Peter and John up into saying something, exposing themselves as frauds. I don't know. Maybe it was just something where the miracle could not be denied. So sheepishly, they're just asking. I don't know. But either way, through God's providence, Peter is set up with one of the most extraordinary opportunities to preach the gospel. 
So Luke writes in verse 8, look down with me at verse 8. He says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man, as how this man has been made well, let it be known to you. And I'm going to stop right there for a second. So a couple observations before we get into his actual message. But first of all, Luke records that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit as he spoke. Now we know during Pentecost, that's when the Spirit came down. And as a believer, you are filled with the Holy Spirit at conversion. So what is he talking about right here if, as Peter being filled? There are many times in Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where the Spirit interacts and empowers someone for a special task. And this is one of those occasions. And this is important to know that because what Peter is about to say is authoritative. It is from God. It is something to take as divine truth and something to take very seriously. It is authoritative from God. And it's also really interesting, Peter being moved by the Holy Spirit. He's extremely witty. (laughs) He's extremely clever. Um, they are on trial for what the Sanhedrin's thought was preaching blasphemy. And yet their question is actually formed around this miracle that happened. So Peter is pretty much saying like, oh, well, I guess we're actually on trial for an act of mercy, actually something good that we had did to this person. He says, if we're on trial day for a benefit done to a sick man, okay, let, let's answer that. I love how he just flips it on them and already just kind of hitting them off balance of what they're even trying to get from him. So after Peter gives clarity as to why these men are trying them for a crime of healing a man, the, he, then, they, he then answers the most important question, their question of what they asked, by what power or in what name have you done this? Look at down in verse 10. He says in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. So how did this miracle happen? It was not through Peter. It was not through John, but it was through a man that these religious leaders knew very, very well because this man in whom this power, power miracle had been taking place, they had tried him and crucified him just several months prior, maybe two, three months prior to this event. There was a short period of time in between Jesus Christ being crucified and now Peter standing before the Sanhedrin. So the miracle of the healing of the lame man that took place, it took place through the power and the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. They asked for, they wanted a name. They asked for a name and Peter gives them the name above all names. Now, as Christians, we're used to hearing this title. We're used to hearing this title of Jesus being the Christ. But during this time in history, especially to these men, this would have been a very scandalous title. Very scandalous title. Jesus of Nazareth would have been okay. That would have been okay. Jesus of Nazareth just being a man, someone who is 
ordinary, someone who is common, somebody who can be disregarded, someone that powerful men like this can just wipe from the pages of history and be done with them, that would have been okay. And yes, Jesus was a man. We celebrate that here at Christmas of God becoming flesh. He was a man. He was a man from Nazareth. He was flesh and blood, the son of a carpenter. And yet he was not just any man. As Peter proclaims, he is Jesus Christ from Nazareth. He is the Christ. And that sets him apart from any other man that ever lived. The label of Christ means that he is like no one else, but he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the anointed one that God had promised to their Jewish forefathers. He is the one that they supposedly had been waiting on. Before Peter's arrest in chapter 3, when he was preaching to the people after the layman was, was healed, and he was preaching to them about Jesus, he says this about him. He said, Jesus, whom Moses had promised, is the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. He's saying what Moses was talking about, that prophet, that is Jesus. That is him. And then Peter goes on to say in chapter 325 that Jesus was who God would bless the world. This promise that he gave to Abraham, their forefather, when he told them, and in your seed, all the families of earth shall be blessed. Peter was saying, that is Jesus. He is that. He is the Messiah. Being Christ means that Jesus of Nazareth is the one that Isaiah spoke about coming. In Isaiah 9, 6, the one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one they've been waiting for. Now, these men would have understood exactly what Peter was saying. These men were experts in the law. They knew scripture. They knew what scripture said about the coming Messiah. I, I wonder if they would have recalled what Isaiah wrote in chapter 35, 6, describing the messianic era when he wrote, then the lame will leap like a deer. They knew their scripture and yet had rejected the Messiah. So can you imagine the tingle of just fear mixed with anger as they're sitting here hearing this response from Peter as he boldly tells them of how this event had happened. It had happened through the powerful name of Christ. I'm sure this was the worst moment for them, but it gets worse. It gets worse. He continues, after he tells them the, the name of Jesus Christ in Nazarene, he then says, whom you crucified. Today, Peter is on trial, and yet he puts them on trial for their crimes, not against humanity, but against God. And he reminds them of a man that they had put on trial previous to this event, a man who had performed countless miracles, a man who had delivered a powerful message of the coming kingdom and the hope of salvation through repentance, a man who was able to tie them up in theological knots as they tried to argue with him and expose him as a fraud, and a man that they were so jealous of, despite the clear evidence that he was sent by God, that they wrongfully 
tried him as a criminal, acts of blasphemy, and they crucified him, which at the time would have been the most shameful execution that they had available at that time. That is what they had done, and they had done that to the Son of God, to the Messiah in which Peter is describing. And once again, this just happened just a short time prior to these events. And what had happened since their supposedly successful execution of their enemy, Jesus, what happened since then? Widespread firsthand reports of Jesus being alive. Thousands of Jews became believers and converted to be his disciples. And now undeniable miracles that were happening through Christ as he walked the earth and now continue to happen through his name. These Jewish leaders had to be completely overwhelmed by this. I mean, they had to be just screaming inside, how is this still happening? We took care of this. How can we not stop this from happening? They had to be so, so frustrated. And as they, these, these thoughts are probably coming up within them as Peter is talking, he gives them an answer of why Jesus will not go away and why they will continue to be confronted by him. And as, as he tells them that Jesus is the man that they crucified, they killed, he also adds whom God raised from the dead. That is why they will continue to be confronted with Jesus because Jesus is a long-awaited Messiah and he died at the hands of them, but he is actually God's resurrected savior. He has been resurrected from the dead by God. And without the resurrection, Jesus would have just been a common man. He would have been like anybody else. But the resurrection confirms his deity, confirms who he is, confirms his nature as being the son of God. Paul writes in Romans 1.4, speaking of Jesus, he says, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it is the resurrection, the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead that points to his powerful nature and points to his deity. Not just that, but Christ's resurrection points to, since he defeated death and he was resurrected, he is able to resurrect those who believe in him. Paul writes to the to the Thessalonians in 1 Thess 4, 14. He writes this, comforting those who had lost loved ones in the Christian faith. And he writes this, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For Christians, our hope of salvation is based on the resurrection. Without the res- resurrection, we have nothing because Christ is not who he says he is, but it is God raising him from the dead that points that he is the one sent from God, that he is the son of God. Also, the resurrection means that he is coming back to judge. Right now he is at the right hand of the father and he is coming back. Paul proclaimed this to the men of Athens in this book, Acts 17.30, he proclaimed this. Therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God raising Jesus from the dead points that he is God himself, God incarnate, that he is, had, has defeated death. And guess what? He is coming back as the judge, which means that message begs repentance. It implores you to repent. Humanity consists of history like these Sadducees, a dark history of powerful people persecuting disciples of Christ. And yet there's a day coming when men like this will be judged by Christ himself, who is King of King and Lord of Lords. That day is coming. The resurrection confirms the powerful nature of Jesus Christ and implores sinners to repent and put their trust in him alone. This is wonderful news of who he is and what God has done for him by raising him from the dead for us. Now I want to point out the Sadducees, they didn't believe in any of this. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They actually did not necessarily believe in the Messiah. They thought the, they thought the Messiah was more of a concept, an era, they, not necessarily a person. In fact, they thought at the current time, they were actually going through the era of messianic reform that they themselves were bringing on, which actually means they think they were the Messiah. So I'm sure as Peter's telling them all these things, they're just shaking their head in disgust, thinking, what a fool. But as we are going to find in our next verse, no matter what they thought about him, it is Christ who is going to have the final say in who he is. He is somebody who cannot be denied. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrected Messiah, but as we're going to find out, the power and nature of Jesus Christ is something that you cannot deny or get away from. So our second essential conviction that we need to have as Christians concerning Jesus is that he is God's irrefutable supreme authority. Look down at verse 11. Peter continues, talking, speaking of Jesus. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. So right here, Peter is quoting Psalm 118.22, which is a psalm of thanksgiving. And I just want to point out before we dive into what he meant by this, this was not the first time that these men had been rebuked through this passage. Luke author of Acts, also wrote the gospel of Luke, where he writes to the account of the chief priests and elders. Many of these men were arguing with Jesus and he was rebuking them. And Jesus actually quotes this verse to them, talking about himself being the cornerstone. And after that, he adds this to those men. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. That means that how you think about Jesus 
matters. There is consequences, and there was going to be consequences for these men for rejecting him. And I'm sure, as Peter is also saying this again, that they are being reminded of that event, and I'm sure they are getting red in the face of hearing it once again, being reminded of this, being rebuked by the disciple of Christ, Peter. So what were Jesus and now Peter, what do they mean by this? What do they mean by this? By quoting this verse is rebuking, rebuking them. And Psalm 118.22, it provides a very simple illustration of constructing a building. It's an illustration. That's what it is. Back in biblical times, when they had a building project, they would have stones lying around, and they would be looking at each one, seeing which one needs to fit in each place. And some would fit in other ways, and they would look at ways of how to construct this building. And Peter describes Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Now, what is, it, what is the cornerstone? There's two views on this. One is that is the capstone. It is the final stone in which kind of holds the building together and is the final one that is placed. The second option is that of a cornerstone, which is more of the foundation stone. It's the foundation that is set that everything else is built upon. I mean, Jesus is the foundation of the kingdom. He's the foundation of everything. Now, I tend, to, I tend to lean a little bit more towards the second option. The prophet Isaiah says something very similar talking about this. In Isaiah 28, 16, he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Peter himself actually quotes this verse from Isaiah in his epistle in 1 Peter um, chapter 2, 4-8. through eight, And he points to the fact that Jesus is the foundation of a spiritual house, the church, in which believers are spiritual stones that make up the church. So having said all that, though, we need to back up. I just want to give a little bit of warning. You, don't, you want to be careful participating too much in this argument uh, there's a capstone, is a foundation. Honestly, if you land either way, you're in good company. Jesus is the first and the last. <laughs> that Peter is making something way more of a simpler argument by using this text. And he's saying something very, very simple to them in rebuking them. The very simple point that he is making from this prophetic illustration concerning Christ is what the Sadducees have rejected is what is the most precious thing to God. It's simply that. They, the Sadducees, saw themselves as builders of the kingdom. They were the ones that was actually doing God's work. And yet, they were like foolish builders that were looking and could not decipher, could not calculate what was rubbish and what was precious to be able to do this project. And they saw the Son of God as rubbish, someone who can be disposed disregarded, insignificant. And by doing that, they missed everything. Absolutely everything because what they saw was rubbish. That is what is, Jesus Christ is what is most precious to God. If you get that wrong, you miss everything. Now these men, they were shrewd politicians, lawyers, teachers of the law, they were very intelligent 
capable men. I mean, look how they came to power. We do not want to downplay their abilities or their intellect. And you're talking intelligent men made the most extreme miscalculation you can ever make. What they saw is something that was not important at all. In fact, something that was scandalous, something is absurd, somebody that they hated and was jealous of actually is the most important person in all of history and has been given the most supreme place of authority above all else, above everyone and above all of creation. And he cannot be disregarded. Paul writes this to the to the, in Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 18. He writes this about concerning Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus' first place in everything, everything in heaven, on earth, is for him, and he was the one who created everything. So if you miss the powerful nature of Jesus being Lord, over everything, then you have missed everything that pertains to life in this world and the next. You have missed it all. And these rulers, they had climbed to some of the most powerful positions all all of Israel. They had accomplished great things. They saw themselves as the lead spiritual leaders and fathers of Israel, and yet they miss the most important truth of all of life. And they are meant to be most pitied because what they saw as important to themselves is complete trash, complete rubbish, and they missed out on the most important divine truth that God has given to men, and that is Jesus Christ as Lord. It's horrifying how many people have made this mistake since then. You're talking all of history is full of builders of empires, war heroes, spiritual leaders who have accomplished great things in this world and will someday stand before God and all their accomplishments are vanity because they got Jesus Christ wrong. They missed it. They saw their own ambition as being most significant and what is most important to God as being insignificant. And it breaks my heart to know how many people are making that mistake right now. Chasing lustful passions, selfish ambitions, caught up in the distractions of this world. Even things that we're meant to enjoy and yet we worship those instead of the creator that gave us those things. And at the end, they will find out that they missed the one purpose in which they were to walk this earth to do, and that was to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. It's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. It's a tragedy to see these men do this right now. Rejecting Jesus as Lord brings only disappointment. But in contrast to that, Peter, talking about the cornerstone in his epistle, 1 Peter 2.6, talking about Christ, He says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That is a glorious message. 
that those who see Christ for who he is, you are not going to be disappointed in this life or the next based on your viewpoint of Jesus. Whatever you believe about Jesus, it matters. It matters in this life and it matters in the next. And we're going to see that in the next verse, chapter 12. Peter reveals that your eternity rests on what you believe about Christ. So in verse 12, we're gonna see our third essential conviction of the powerful nature of Jesus Christ. And that is, he is God's given exclusive savior. Peter continues his proclamation of Christ before the Sadducees in verse 12. Look down there with me. And he says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, remember the events leading up to this. A lame man was powerfully healed through the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And here, we are told that him be able to heal somebody's legs, there is more important things that happen through the power and the, the power of Christ. He possesses the power to save sinners from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ himself said in John 14, 6, the testimony of himself is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That is his own testimony that he is exclusively the savior of the world. There is no other. And now to the Sanhedrin, this was a scandalous message. This was a scandalous message that Jesus is the Christ. They needed saving from him. It's a scandalous message today. Christ being only savior means that there are not many paths that lead to God. There is but one. There is but one. It means that we are not inherently good, but we are born depraved sinners that have hearts that rebel against God, and we need saving. The very act of God sending a savior means that we desperately need salvation because without that, we are helpless. And we never need to forget that it is God who is the offended party as far as our relationship with him and our sin against him, we are the guilty party. We are the ones that are culpable. We're not victims. He is the one who has been offended. And it's so interesting so many times when you have conflict between two people, you hear this all the time, that they, people say something like, if only that person would do this, if only they would change, then everything would be okay. And of course, doing that, you're not taking any responsibility of what you can do to solve the relationship. And now here's the good news. In this divine conflict between God and man, a holy, righteous God and sinners, God has acted. He has done something. He is the initiator. He is the one that has done something to provide reconciliation for rebels who have sinned against him. He's provided a way. There is no better news than that. What people see as scandalous because it's not quite what they want, it is the most glorious news that has been given to man that God has provided a way through to salvation through his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
And as Peter says, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way to salvation because God has ordained it that way. Not just that, but it could only have been him. There could be no other. Because of who he is, he could be the only one. Because of his nature, he's the only one that could pay the price for the forgiveness of sinners. He's the only one who could have done that because of who he is by his nature. He is the son of God who became flesh. And he is the only man, the only person that's ever walked this earth perfectly without sin. And he's the only one that could have been the perfect sacrifice that God would have accepted as propitiation, as payment for the sins of those who would put their trust in him as their sacrifice. He's the only one who could have done that. Not only is God ordained salvation through Jesus Christ alone, Jesus Christ alone is the only one who could have paid the price. And so what do you do with that message? What do you do with that message? It's very simple. You believe it. You believe it, and you, because out of your belief, you repent of your sins, and you follow him as a follower of Christ. There, God... For believers, Jesus is the one who has paid the price. He is our propitiation. He is the payment for our sins. And through him, there is forgiveness. Paul says this better than I can. So I'm going to read what he says about this and let him speak to us. But in Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul writes this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in forbearance of God, he had passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how can we be justified before God? How can we be righteous before God? It is nothing of ourselves, it is nothing of our own work, but it is simply by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the greatest news given to man. And this is something that you must hold fast. And it is the power to save. Now back to our story. The tragic ending of this story is the Sadducees' response to this message. Now, previous to this, during Pentecost and also during this time of them healing the lame man, thousands heard this message and they were converted. They believed, they became disciples of Christ. But these men who saw themselves as spiritual leaders, instead, they continued to persecute. They continued to do anything they could to extinguish this message of salvation through Christ. And... Out of that, there's a dark history of Christians being persecuted. However, due to that persecution, the message actually spread outside of Jerusalem into the Asian provinces, the Greek provinces. 
And even though there's a dark history of persecution of God's people, there is a rich history of people actually believing, actually coming to faith, actually being saved because through the gospel, there is salvation. And that is why even after all this dark history of persecution, here we are today as believers meeting together, worshiping him for who he is. And as Christians, we can have full conviction that the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ is the power of God to save. Paul's testimony to the Romans is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And my question is, for all of us here today, do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe this message of who Jesus is and what he has done? Do you believe that by his nature, he is sufficient to actually cover our sins for his atoning work on the cross? Do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah that God resurrected from the dead and that he is coming back as king? Do you believe that God has given him supreme authority over all things, over all creation, heaven and earth? Do you believe that God has provided a way of salvation through faith in him alone? That he alone is exclusively savior of the world? Do you believe that Jesus is the only one who is qualified to pay the price of sin based on his divine nature of who he is and what he has done for salvation of sinners? Do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe the gospel? Do you believe that is the power to save? As Christians, this should define everything about us. If you were to ask who are you as a person, we should be able to point to Jesus and say, that defines everything you need to know about me. So do you actually believe and does your, ref- does your life reflect your belief in your Savior? As Christians, this Christmas, we hold a powerful message. We hold a very powerful message. And are you confident in your belief in the gospel to be able to share it in a hostile, hostile world that desperately needs to hear this good news. So I pray this Christmas season would be a season for us to fellowship, worship together, and also be a season that we ourselves can meditate on what do we believe about Jesus, and we can grow in our knowledge of him, our understanding of him, our love in him, our faith can be deepened to where we live in a way that brings him worship, his, him glory through our obedience, and that we can confidently share that message with a world that desperately needs to hear it. We have a powerful message. It is the power to save. And I pray that this Christmas, it would be a time for us to remind ourselves of the great things that God has done done for us. We've been given much and we have much to rejoice in. Father, I want to thank you so much for passages like this for this morning that reminds us of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. He and he alone is Savior because he is God the Son, and only he is the one who could provide salvific works that were sufficient enough to cover our wicked sins. And Father, I pray that this would be something that we would have a boldness in sharing, that it is something that would define everything of who we are, that we would continue to rejoice and share this message in this life, because we know, Father, this is something we will worship you for for all of eternity. 
Father, I pray that this Christmas season would be a season for us to remind ourselves of the great things that you have done and meditate on the great salvation you have provided for us. And I pray that you would use us to spread this message to our family, our friends, and those who desperately need to hear it. Father, thank you so much for this morning and thank you for this message. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.